Another one of our sponsors I'm excited to tell you about is actually another podcast. It's called People of Product. And it's really about kind of highlighting the way people come together in innovative ways and create all the digital products that seem to be in every part of our lives. And what I think I like the most is that these guys are speaking from experience. You know, we had George Brooks on our show. And besides that, he's like a really genuine human being, just super knowledgeable at creating way more effective teams to get this kind of stuff done. And I really can't recommend it enough. You can find them anywhere that you get your podcasts and I recommend you checking out People of Product. So longtime listeners of the show will probably remember Jay Davis, who's been on a number of times. Well, in addition to being a friend and a consulting client, I'm excited to say now that he's also a sponsor of this show. Last year, when I was spending a lot of time at his company's office, he started a new company called PillowCube, which is this awesome memory foam rectangle pillow. That's tall enough for me to be a side sleeper, but not have to have my head sag down like when I try to fold over my regular pillows. It's really pretty amazing, and for any side sleepers like me, it's great so we don't have to wake up with shoulder pain. On top of that, it's been really fun for me to see him have so much success because it's been selling like crazy. Anyways, if you're a side sleeper, I highly recommend going to pillowcube.com and getting one for yourself. Great ups, two or three or four great upsides. We're talking about undermarket rents. We're talking about being able to improve the property through inexpensive cosmetic upgrades. Having, if you're, let's say, let's just say, even um, a strip mall that you know you could put some more service-related businesses into that, or, or just you know, like an architectural firm or, or, or businesses that afford higher rent, you know, change the tenants and so on. So, the, so more upsides. If you have a dynamite property, that's one of the keys to raising investors. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show, we've got Terry Painter. Terry, glad to have you. Hey, nice to be here. Thanks. So I'm really excited to talk about the new book, but but tell people tell people about your day job. Tell us what else you do. Well, actually, now and this is I mean I'm very fortunate because I've actually redesigned my life because of the success of my business. So what I basically do is I still take I still work for my okay. So I do commercial real estate loans. I'm a mortgage banker. We represent a lot of the big money: Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, FHA, debt fund lenders. REITs, which we were speaking about earlier, and so on. And what, so, so anyway, what I get to do is put deals together. And so, but what I'm also doing now is just doing a lot of writing, which I really enjoy. So I used to spend about 60 hours a week. I used to dread when when the weekend started because I wanted to get back to work on Monday. Now, after all these years, I I, I value my time. So I so basically work on the deals that that I want that I want to work on. Yeah, I did, you know, on LinkedIn when I saw you were in Portland and then when we hopped on here, I'm saying that looks pretty tropical in the background for Portland. <laughs> it's uh it does seem yes. nice to be down there in Dominican Republic, huh? Yes, it's my winter home. Yes, it's great. I love it. Well, um I'm a big advocate of commercial real estate investing. Excited about this this book that I've been flipping through a little bit here, the Encyclopedia of Commercial Real Estate Advice. Why don't we, well, why don't you tell us just the, the quickest overview of, of the book? And then I want to just start going through some of the table of contents and hear some of your stories. Okay. I think, yeah. Okay, well, when you think about a book that's called 
the encyclopedia of commercial real estate advice. That sounds pretty boring, you've got to admit, you know? And, you know, it's a fairly technical subject, actually. It's not, I mean, there's a lot. I mean, there, you have to understand, you know, I actually had 480 some encyclopedia subjects relating to commercial real estate. And my publisher said, no, we can't make an 800 page book. It's too expensive. You got to cut this down. So they cut the book down quite a bit. And, and I actually, there's, uh, 336 encyclopedia subjects that got cut down that far, but they're, they're, those are the main ones. And so the book, what makes it really great is that I wrote it to encourage more people to get into it. I work for a lot of wealthy people. Some of them have inherited their commercial real estate. It's a pretty exclusive club. If you look around any town, any city, you'll see these big buildings, the shopping centers, the office buildings, the apartment buildings, self-storage properties, industrial properties and so on. And the majority of those are owned by pretty wealthy people and they get the best income sources. They get like five sources of income where, you know, if you just have a job, that's like a paycheck. That's one source. If you have, you know, if you have, if you're in the stock market, you get dividends and interest. That's two sources, but with commercial real estate or for that matter, any investment property real estate, you get the income from the property, from the rents, less, you know, after expenses. You also get rental increases. You also get appreciation. And that's where my clients make most of their money over probably starting at a, after about five years. Uh, you could, if you could, if you're able to raise rents, you could enough, you could, you could actually increase your investment by 20%. That's that's pretty darn good. So then we have depreciation. So like it's like only in America can something appreciate and depreciate at the same time. Now, a lot of foreign countries don't have depreciation. They think it's really, really strange. And so but with that, it's like a million dollar apartment building. Let's say you were, you were to purchase a million dollar apartment building. What you're going to do is, let's just say the land is worth $100,000. you are going to take that away because, you, because the land doesn't depreciate. But the building, the, uh, our government in the United States figures that probably after 27 and a half years, it's going to fall to the ground because that's how much depreciation they give you. You could write that thing off for 27 and a half years, and you end up with about a 26,000 and odd change right off on your taxes every year that you could use to offset your income, any other, any other sources of income. So, and then lastly, you have the fifth source is actually doing a cash out refinance or a 1031 exchange, deferred exchange to buy more property. And that's how, you know, my clients have grown really wealthy over the years. Yeah. So. You know, I, I look at it this way. I, I um, When I was younger, I thought real estate was boring. I want to do, I want to do really exciting, like shoot for the moon type investments. And, you know, my personal net worth went up, then it went down as it does when you say, then it went up, then it went down. Right. Yes. And I called my mentor and just said, John, like I'm doing this entrepreneurship thing wrong. We've owned all these businesses together and we have like, we have the big upsides and the big downsides, but you have this soft landing because you've owned this millions of dollars of commercial real estate for 30 years. I got to do entrepreneurship the way you do it. <laughs> and so that's why we, we've, you know, pursued our direction in commercial real estate and, and gone after recruiting kind of a, a tier one type team for it. But I want to, you know, I, I've been even just going through the table of contents and flipping to some of the chapters. I, I really like this book, by the way, are you going to do an audio version? Have you talked about doing an audio version? Yeah. <laughs> You know, I, I think it would be great, but you have to realize that how the book is set up is it has roughly uh, on each, there's eight major topics in the book. 
And there's one or two chapters on each, a couple of chapters on each topic, and then an encyclopedia section on that topic. So I think it would be great to have the, to certainly have the chapters be in an audio version. That, that would be perfect. Now, as far as the encyclopedia subjects, it's really designed so that if you just want to look something up or learn more on a subject, you can kind of flip through those. So I'm not, so I don't think that would lend itself as well to audio. Well, if you do it, let me know and I'll get a copy for myself so I don't have to read. Yeah, it's um, in the works. It's in the works. Okay. okay. Well, if you don't care, I want to just jump around to some of these, some of these interesting chapter headings and hear your, idea, hear your ideas and, and stories. The first one, you know, I love books like Howard Marks, Mastering the Market Cycle and some of these. I'm interested in your chapter here, The Four Phases of Commercial Real Estate Market and the Best Time to Buy. Okay. That, that, that's a really good one, which is which, what, what's really amazing is that it's actually unbelievable that in, let's say, let's say 2000, well, late 2007, we had just gone through a bull market of six great years in the in real estate and people forgot about recessions and they were overpaying for properties because they just because they just thought they would just keep going up. Well, it was even worse in at the beginning of, of 2019 when the coronavirus recession hit. And if, you know, and it didn't you know, I mean it was just very obvious it was going to be a recession because but because you know the GDP went was just completely wiped out and unemployment shot through the roof. But what had happened again is that we went through 10 years of a bull market. So, so, so many people bought properties at the very top of the four cycle cycles of the real estate market. And what happens is that you always, let's just say, so right, right, right now we're in the, so, so they forgot the recessions even happened. We're talking about mortgage brokers, lenders, investors. And also sellers. They just thought they could just keep raising prices. Yeah. Well, my, my one thought maybe to put in here, if you estimate over your career, how many real estate loans do you think you've you've been a part of the approving that at, at any part of that process? How many loans do you think you've seen over your lifetime? Well, well, let's just say I would actually I would actually estimate three or four hundred. We because my first job actually in this business is we had an assembly line. I had a staff of actually two people who would step until midnight to do it. But we actually were in assembly line for putting together SBA loans and packaging them. And so, you know, we just we would we could you know at that time I don't know do certainly maybe 120, 140 a year. So it's hard to say, but if I, but otherwise just as far as straight commercial real estate, you know, two or 300 easily. Yeah. Over what period of time? Uh, started in 1997 through the present. So we're talking about 24 years. Yeah. So, okay. Sorry for the interruption, but I think it gives good context for okay. your point of view. Yeah. yeah. So, so that's basically because, so yeah, and that's, well, now I'd love to get back to what you're saying, but what, what the, uh, what if, you know, I've worked. I've seen a lot of mistakes people have made all over the time. I think they've. I've had people default on loans. I mean, it's like I've seen it all with all different types of properties during all kinds of market cycles. You know, the recession being just one of them. That it's. It's like so. What What happens is that you've got to really think about commercial real estate as a business. Like, okay, so this is. So let's just say you like you're you come up with this new type of flip flops that absolutely are just killing it. And you have it, you're selling them online. And so what happens is you decide you want to sell this business. So you sell it to somebody who has no idea that there's actually six or eight large companies copying this and just making some slight alterations. So guess what? So they paid, they might have paid, let's just say four million dollars for a business that based upon what its earnings are, are only maybe it's only worth 
two million. And that's the trouble that people get at the when they when they're in what we call the hyper supply phase of the real estate market cycle, where where they keep build they built too many properties, they've repositioned or rehabbed too many property commercial properties, and prices have gone up beyond what the income would support. So you've really got to think of if you're investing in the stock market, would you really want to earn less than 6%? Would you want to learn less than 5%? And that, that's what we see in that market cycle. When we get we get to the hyper supply phase of the real estate market cycle is that people are willing to accept very low return on their investments. And I can understand that if it's a very bulletproof safe investment. So yeah, getting back to the four phases, what ha- you know, so we have like right now we're in the coronavirus recession and it's really, it's an, it's kind of, a, most recessions are caused by what we were talking about. And that's the, just the inflation. I mean, prices have just gone too high for the rate, for the return. They're just not realistic. And then something happens in the economy and, you know, lending tightens, tightens and, you know, prices start, are going to start falling and that, cre- you know, and that creates a recession. But what happens is that, so, so it's really important to know what phase of the real estate market cycle you are in. So right now, when we're about, nine to 10 months, seven to nine to 10 months into a recession, that's when prices start coming down on distressed properties. And that's where you could get a good deal because you're going to see bank foreclosures. It takes about a year for a bank to foreclose on a property. And that's when you could buy them on the courthouse steps at a discount if you know how to do that. And you're going to see more seller financing uh, available and so on. It's going to be, it becomes this very solid buyer, buyer's market. Being that we're less than a, just roughly getting close to a year into the coronavirus recession. And it's a much softer recession on real estate. We have, we have, you know, certainly office properties, hospitality, hotels, motels, and retail properties that have gotten almost wiped out in some, loca- lo- some loca- locations by this recession. But certainly multifamily industrial properties are, are doing very, they're doing better than ever in some, some locations. So so it's not it's not as consistent, it's not as typical as most recessions, but but still there's going to be some good deals right now out there. So so certainly the recession phase is a good time to pick up a property at a better deal, better price. You know, yeah. So I'm actually super interested in this subject because you look at again the typical recession. It's it's caused by the overconfidence and too much money chasing too few few deals. And right, it, it goes up and then, you know, goes up like an escalator comes down like an elevator, typically, right? Yes. But you happen. look at this, you look at this situation we've got right now, and you know, it's not, it's it's not a typical recession, as you're pointing out. And then you look at the way the Fed dumped an extra three trillion dollars into the market. And you know, if you were to look at the stock market, people wouldn't call it a recession. If you look at the stock prices out there, right? Yeah, but, 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 yeah, but the Feds, they, they were real, they were really smart this time. And what they did, because I went through the the Great Recession, and what happened is that we we could not. So we had a, a bunch of the majority of our loans today are still mortgage-backed security bond uh, deals. And what happened is that okay, so it took the Feds a while to actually start buying uh, mortgage bonds, you know, uh, mortgage-backed securities, and and actually it's actually a kind of equivalent to printing money, but it but it, but this time they did it right away. So we had liquidity in our, and and we could do loans because of that. So. But but my point my point to that is that when so many people because because there's folks that definitely got you know folks who probably deserved the help it was it wasn't due to unwise financial decisions that they got in trouble right right but there's but we also saved the folks that shouldn't have been saved 
during like like the, the people who had really unwise amounts of debt and, and things like this, then Correct. this, this went way easier on them than it probably should have. You know, we didn't, it's like the forest fire didn't get to clean out the deadwood. Yeah. You know what I mean? Are you talking more about the great recession or where we're at or today? Where, where we're at today, I'm saying with all that fed money, we saved yeah. a lot of people who probably deserve to be saved. And right. then we, we also saved a bunch of people who's, financial imprudence they probably didn't deserve to be saved sure yeah, and they got the they got saved as well right exactly so my, it's just yeah so my question right now for you is you know you look at you look at the stock market multiples to earnings that are you know we haven't it, they weren't even this high in 2008 i mean we haven't seen this except for 1929 and and to the year 2000 right so you look at like for instance multifamily values right and my question for you is what do you what do you anticipate happening if the stock market keeps doing this and causes a financial recession at some point because because it you know the excesses lead to a swing in the pendulum sure um, and then that could yeah that could really happen because you know, if you think about the stock market it's really based on it's, it's supposed to be based on the earnings of these companies and it, but it's really more based on the whims of investors every day and so when you have, so it's once again, a bit of smoke and mirrors, isn't it? And well, look at, look at these, one, look at these headlines. You know, how many thousands of people are downloading the Robinhood app for the first time to make that easy money, right? You look at the, you, you know, you look, you look at some of these things that are, oh yeah, we've seen this before, before recessions, when all of a sudden unsophisticated folks, you know, they hear how much their friend made in Tesla. They hear how much some kids made on GameStop. Well, yeah, so I, I, have, I have a relative that lost close to $2 million on Cisco in, in the year 2000 because she put all of her money into technology stocks at the wrong time because they were, they were paying like something ridiculous, like 14%, you know? And so once again, you've got to think about where does that money come, where's that money coming from? And I mean, usually you are going to have, a, there's going to be a bubble that's going to burst some, at some time. Because, you know, just the basic tenets of economics is that there should be goods and services and prices should be based on something, you know, but but what's what's happening here, you know? Well, this is my question for you. People are paying all-time highs for multifamily. And, you know, if, you, if you're lucky enough to be an industrial building that houses Amazon, that, you know, you can get an incredible multiple for a building like that these days, right? So my question is, you see pain in hospitality, places like this, but not so much in, you know, multifamily or, or industrial, like you're saying. If, if these stock market, stock market excesses keep going the way they do, what do, you anticipate, what do you anticipate happens with multifamily if the whole rest of the economic system has troubles from the stock market going so high it, it pops its own well, bubble? Yeah, well, you have to think, well, here's the thing. So you've you you got to think about the people who are paying the rent, okay? The majority, okay, so a lot of people, there, there are a lot of retired people who decided to rent, and certainly they've invested in their, their 401ks and IRAs are in the stock market. But also the people who are paying the rent, a lot of those are working people. And and so you know, the question is, you know, will you know, is there a correlation of, with what you're saying to, you know, the income stream of, you know, people paying, you know, paying the rent. And, and there, there, I would say more so there's not as much of, of, a, of a, you know, a thread there. So, uh, you know, the, the, the thing about multifamily that I just want to bring up is that, so because of these other food groups, hotels, strip malls, you know, restaurants, big chain restaurants, and so on, and we also have retail, you know, retail and office, you know, not performing well or, or just completely failing. 
more people that would invest in those properties when they do their 1031 exchanges and so on, they're, they're going into apartments. So now there's a shortage uh, in most major markets. And so that's really, so even though we're in a recession, which we did not see this during the, we did not, I mean, prices uh, did drop a bit or at least hold steady in a multifamily during the Great Recession. But in this recession, they're going up in a lot of places or certainly maintaining their value. So, so that's kind of a, an anomaly of this recession. So I'm not sure if I answered your question about correlation yeah, with so the stock my, market. Well, my, my question there is, if we end up with a lot of financial pain here in the near future, you know, the stock market, it, if the stock market goes so high that the bubble pops and we have greater financial difficulties across the country, my question is, what do you think happens to, to multifamily? If they're, if they're like A okay. and B and their, and their rent stays in place, do you yeah, think so, that so the cap rates just move a little bit or not so much? Yeah, so let's talk about that because that's something that I've had direct experience with. Okay, so if somebody buys, if, you, if somebody's talking about investing in, a, in an A or B property, which is a multifamily property, which is you know, an apartment complex that was built certainly in the last 20, 25 years or less, and or the, even the or the best ones of the best ones are called lifestyle properties. They have great amenities. Well, those people have those tenants have good jobs, retirement income, or they have savings, and so they pay the rent. But like right now, as we do, we finance all kinds of multifamily, and in let's just say a working class neighborhood with a C class property, then from let's like say you know 12, 16, and maybe as high as 22 percent of the loans we're working on right now. Currently, we have problems with the, that percentage of tenants not paying being late because of the, because of the coronavirus. So so that's, that's so it really does pay. So of course the C quality properties are less expensive and, and, and the A and B class properties, you know, you might be getting, if you were to invest, you, you could be, let's just say at a, five cap, let's say, that's going to be, that's equivalent to like, you know, earning 5% on your, in the stock market or something. So. Yeah. And I guess my question is, you know, in Salt Lake, there's a bunch of buildings going for maybe a five, five cap or, or high fours, you know, Phoenix, there's stuff going low, you know, four or low fours. My question for right. you is if we get even more pain in the economy and the stock market pops, do you think that those turn into a five cap or a six, seven cap because everybody's out of money? Or do you think they'll stay at a four cap because there's hardly any good places to put money? Actually, the way, the way I view it, and this is, you understand the stock market is not my area of expertise, okay? Real estate is. There's, there's, but, if, but if you think of just what you're saying, it, you can tell that it really does pay to diversify into real estate at a minimum. Because unless rents go down, there's a direct correlation to property values, especially with commercial real estate or rental properties, based on whether rents are staying static or going up, and and if they are going down, then or if the, a lot of people are having trouble paying the rent, then that's the same equivalent as them going down. Then you know, property values could could certainly go down, but it certainly can't. It's not going to be the same as a major correction of the stock market with where the, where the stock market is today. We just don't have rapid swings in real estate like that or commercial real estate. It takes a long time. We don't, we're not going to see like a 12% drop in one week, like we saw, I think, in February of 2019 in the stock market. That doesn't yeah. happen in real estate. Yeah. Well, and let's switch subjects for a minute. Let's talk about 12 due diligence mistakes that that uh, buyers should avoid. Why don't you pick one or two of those on the due okay. diligence side? Well, well the, okay, well, the... <laughs> 
I'd say the, the, my favorite one is actually falling in love with the property and absolutely having to have it. That's the one. It's kind of like love at first sight. You know, if you know, anybody who's dated and had that experience, especially when you're younger, it doesn't happen as much when you get older. But and and so it's really what the problem is that you're probably going to be you're probably going to end up paying more than the property is worth. In my book, I tell the story of a client who I had done numerous loans for, and it's in chapter one. <laughs> so and and this guy. Actually, he bought a property that, and I looked at it for him. I evaluated it, and I and it's brand new. It was, it was, and he said, "Terry, I've got to have this." I said, "Do you realize you paid about a million dollars more than it's worth? You're paying thirteen point five million for this. I'm sorry, you're, you've offered fourteen point five million for this property, and it's only worth about thirteen million. You're paying a million and a half more than it's worth." Well, he said, "I've got to have it," and it, it, you know, it just had the best amenities, room, beautiful. Uh, views of the river from every room. I said, "Hey, John, you're not going to be living there. Find a property that it, that is priced at least lower than its replacement cost, like you've always done. This is not a good investment." But he insisted on it, so he ended up paying. Once the appraisal came, came in, and it did come in at 13 million instead of uh, 14 and a half, the seller did take a half a million off the purchase price, but he still ended up paying a million dollars more than the property is worth. So. Buy a property because you fall in love with it and you don't really get, you know, and you don't really get to know it, you know, really. And take the time to evaluate why you're buying this in the first place. You know, I said, I said John, your friends are not even going to see this. You're not going to be living there. You know, you live in, you live in Bellevue. You're not going to be. So anyway, so this, so that's, that's one. This, the second most important due diligence mistake to avoid is actually not taking shortcuts with due diligence. If you think about just buying one rental property and what happens when people buy one rental property, they get really excited about the rent that's coming in every month. But, you know, and what they don't, what they really take shortcuts on is really evaluating. And the reason I'm bringing up a single rental is because it's easier, uh, it's easier to visualize. So you take a look at, you know, the product of rents coming in, your mind immediately goes to, let's just say that rent that's bringing $1,350 a month. And so you're not, you're pretty smart. So you know that the taxes are going to be, let's just say maybe about $200, $250 a month on that. And, but what happens is that unless you do your due diligence and check all the other costs, like, are they, like sometimes, you know, sometimes your plant, your, the seller is not managing the property he's not even a professional managed you live out of state you have to have it managed so that's going to add like another 10 percent on an expenses you've got to really know what those expenses are and you also people never think about all the repairs on even any property that's like over seven years old is going to start having some major repair costs and so so the same thing now if we extrapolate that onto commercial real estate there's so many things you've got to so much due diligence you've got to do to make sure this property is who you thought it was and the good news is that if it's not, sure, you might have offered too much for the property, but it's standard procedure to knock the price down, you know, uh, prior to your due diligence period running out. You know, um, I, th I think that lesson is really visceral for me because my partners and I almost bought a apartment building, I guess it's like 13 years ago now. And it was in like, it was in the really cool part of Calgary in, in West Calgary called Marta Loop. And the numbers looked great and everything was great. And, and in the inspections, it, in the inspections, it seemed like things were going okay. And then just like, you know, we had been overly excited about some things in the past. And so we really, we really wanted to know, you know, so we were, we're continuing on the due diligence and sure enough, we find out 
part of the building has been sinking over the years. Oh, yeah. And what we're going to buy is the expense of jacking up an entire apartment building to save the thing, right. you right. know? And we just, yes. oh, we felt like we dodged a bullet. Yeah. Yeah. I've actually had that happen a number of times. I won't go into too much detail because you already brought up the told a very good story, but uh, we had a client in Portland that put a property to rehab and what it was actually built on the hillside. And what he, what happened is that when the building inspector came, because he did not totally do it, he did not get an engineer in there. You know, he just did not do a thorough uh, property condition report. And what he found out is that one of the buildings had shifted enough that they really, it ended up costing him over a million dollars to actually, you know, build retaining walls and shore up the foundations of these of this property. And it, it made the property, it made, you know, it just made it not, it's a bad investment. So yeah, yeah. that's exactly what we're talking <laughs> Well, I'm, I'm scanning down the page here. This this seems like an interesting one. Eight, eight countermeasures for not having enough money and experience. Can you tell us a couple of those? Yeah. Well, one of the things that I kind of like by default fell into is helping people. My book, the Encyclopedia of Commercial Estate Advice, really has the very best recipe for this. So, and what I'm talking about is actually you know, buying commercial property with other people's money. It's or any type of property. You know, it, it might sound like a cop out or like, wow, you're taking a shortcut there, but actually it really is smart business because if you think about how long it will take you to save the down payment to buy a property. And I go through that in my book, but, and what it, and that if you could actually raise the money and buy it today, you always remember you're going to make more money from appreciation than anything else. So if you could get your foot in the door, use other people's money to get there. So what happened, the thing about it is that like, I, this story is in my book too. And it's my very, when I teach seminars or when I do speaking, I love to tell this story for Kelly Fabris, but she went in 2005, she calls me, she's an LAPD officer. She wants to retire. She told me she's gonna be a millionaire. She took this course called the Maui Millionaires and they, they taught people that if you could raise investors, you could buy multi-million dollar properties. And so I, so anyway, so she didn't really have any, she had only, she only owned one rental that was like a you know $400,000 property. It was, there's no, she wanted to buy a $6.8 million property, but, but she was able to do it. For what for one main reason is that she didn't know she couldn't do it. I've seen a lot of people get to where they're going. In fact, how I got into this business where everybody when everybody told me I was gonna fail is because I didn't know I couldn't, you know, and I just started, I just delved into it, you know, just dived into it. But so I ended up, you know, testing out teaching seminars where people sometimes there would be 40, 70 people that wanted to learn how to buy commercial property with very little money. And so what, so this gets into this. So actually, part of this entails faking into you know faking it until you make it. That doesn't sound very reputable, but the thing about it is that everybody's got to start somewhere. Like I, you know, at some point I did my first commercial real estate loan. I didn't tell that person that that was my first deal. Now if they had asked me, I'm an honest person. I would have told them, right? You know, but you know, you've got to start somewhere. So actually, what I advise people to do, this is a recipe, and I don't have time to go through the whole thing, but it's number one, if you want to raise money uh, from investors and also could be able to get financing, what you want to do is put is raise by hook or crook at least 10% of the equity, that's the down payment, in your own name. Because are you really, do you really want to tell an investor that, that you know, they ask you, well, how much, everybody, every investor is going to ask you, how much are you putting in? Do you, do you really want to say zero? You know, where's your credibility there? Yeah, but, you know, are they really going to want to invest with you if this is your first deal? You know, when they, if there's plenty of uh, experienced deal managers out there. So 
the key. So actually putting some of your own money in is key. Actually finding a property that has a great ups, two or three or four great upsides. We're talking about under market rents. We're talking about being able to improve the property through inexpensive cosmetic upgrades. Having, if you're, if say, let's just say, even um, a strip mall that you know you could put some more service-related businesses into that. Or just you know, like an architectural firm or, or, or businesses that afford higher rent, you know, change the tenants and so on. So, the, so more upsides. If you have a dynamite property, that's one of the keys to raising investors. So, but you do have to put some of your own money in, and and so, and then also what you want to do is bring in somebody to mentor you. What you want to do is bring in an experienced investor, and you could talk to real estate uh, brokers. They're not going to want to give you the time of day if you say, hey, this is, I'm just getting started in this and I'm really interested in your $3 million apartment complex here. They're just going to hang up on you. But if you tell them that you're representing this high net worth investor and you could actually show that person, that individual's balance sheet and so on, you're going to get your foot in the door. And if you have a dynamite property, you're going to be able to raise investors. And if you could kind of like, if you gain the confidence to actually, you need to learn, really study hard and learn this and then pitch it to investors. And in that case, you will be faking it because you haven't done this before, but there's other things you probably have been successful at that you could extrapolate your experience out of. So I go into how to this recipe of how to do this because, because of Kelly Fabris, I, I fell into uh, working with people who were newbies at investing in commercial real estate. Now, no, I, I, I did, I did peruse that chapter a little bit. And I felt like one of the other great pieces of advice you shared is is learning the jargon, learn to speak the lingo that the professionals yes. are using, right? Yes, exactly. You can always tell when somebody doesn't, but still to this day, my staff, we take, they take the, the inquiry calls, we all, and myself sometimes, we all get fooled by somebody who knows the jargon. We get sucked right in because they're talking our lingo, we know their experience, and then, and then we find out what you only have like 2% to put in and you don't have any experience yet, but but they but that that's a really key key part. Yes. Um, well, let's go to let's go to chapter ten here. Trade secrets for getting the best rate, loan fees, and terms. Okay. Well, if somebody wants to invest in commercial real estate, this is probably the very best chapter. This will pay dividends on what you paid for my for the book, and the book isn't cheap. It's forty nine dollars. Yeah, but it's worth it just for this chapter because. What it really gets down to is that just as I give us the analogy of, of auto dealership and I compare it to even getting a bank loan is that what you have is you have somebody who needs to sell cars and another study of somebody who needs to sell money. And what, what, what it really gets down to is that what's really strange about both, both fields is that both will give you a better deal if, you're, if, you, if you have a high credit score and you're wealthy and you have money. If you're scraping by and and you're just just you know you don't really have much to put down and so on, you're going to get a very high interest rate. But you could probably still buy a car. You could get a very expensive hard money loan too, for that matter, if you have some money and so on. So, but so this this chapter really tells you basically how lenders make money. And there's two ways they can make like banks. Banks actually make most of their money from the interest they charge you on loans. So that's why they have prepayment penalties. And so, but they also make bank, uh, money from bank fees. And if you're going to be getting a securitized mortgage, like even an FHA loan, you've got to realize that the, those lenders do not make any money from the interest. So the investors in those mortgage-backed security bonds make all the money from the interest. So, and the bond trader shops. But so what, what, what you have is what we you have is perhaps 
as much as two percent, you know, I'm sorry, let's just say roughly at least a quarter of a percent to even more if the loan is bigger to dicker on interest rate. And, and you could always go after the loan fee because those that's all that's that uh, the lenders making their money from the interest rate and the loan fee. And there's a lot more on that in the book. And, and, and I talk about, and you know, I've already got some lenders upset with me for giving away their trade secrets. But I felt it was only fair because especially commercial lending is not regulated. Consumer lending is, if you get, you know, so I felt I think it's only fair to level the playing field a bit. And, the, and this, that chapter really goes into it. You know, I, I love my Warren Buffett quotes. And he says, <laughs> yeah, he's uh, risk, risk comes from not knowing what you're doing, right? And what an advantage to, to understand how the lender's making their money. I mean, it's a great way to deal with them is understand where they make their money, right? It's Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And another example of that, which is my favorite, is just that we're all we're told that we get a quote from a lender, whether it's for a home mortgage or you know a larger commercial investment, we're usually told we're all we're usually given a an index plus a margin, you know. And sure, the margin, the index could be like a, a 10-year treasury bond, let's say, which is which anybody can look up. It, it changes uh, every couple of minutes. But what, what people don't realize is that where the lenders make their money is by they can always add as much to the to the to the spread or the margin as they want, as, as the market will bear. So in a sense, for that reason, there's even though they'll try to make you think that interest rates are carved in stone, because they'll say, well, the right now, you know, treasuries are high, you know. But what it really gets down to is that they have room to move the rates. Mm-hmm. So. You know, it's pretty related. But but what do you go into in chapter eleven? This next one of taking charge of your commercial loan. Yeah, because that's a really that's really a good one. I, ju- I just did a, a YouTube video on that one, and I, yeah, and I also I also have a YouTube channel that's new, and it's called the Encyclopedia of Commercial Real Estate Advice Channel. It, uh, it's the same channel we had for we've had for years for our, our commercial mortgage business. But anyway, so. I'm sorry, I, I get into self-promotion and I forgot the question. Uh, well, you, you told us some good ideas of, of oh, how yes. the lending business really works. But when you say yeah. take charge Taking of your commercial charge. loan, what does that mean? Yeah, what, what it really takes is, this sounds this sounds like, can I really, is that really possible? Can I really do this? But what I'm really talking about is pre-qualifying yourself, especially if you're buying a property. So many people actually go as far as making an offer for a property and they get a letter of interest from a lender. It says that they're pre-approved or from a mortgage broker and they really they don't really think much more about it. And then what happens is that about 30 days in, the, they're told that, well, sorry, but you're, you don't, I can't qualify you for a million dollar loan, but you're going to get a can for $850,000 loan. You know, it's not that they're necessarily doing it by bait and switch. What it really gets down to is that the lender did not really go through the seven, in that chapter, there's, I go through the seven pre-qualifications that you need to understand and learn for commercial lending. And I don't have time, obviously, here to go through those, but what you're going to be doing is asking each lender for every loan program you're, in, you're interested in those seven questions. It doesn't really take all that long. Yeah, like what's, what's a couple the, of those questions? Yeah, like, what, yeah, okay, well, as far as the borrower, like, what, what minimum credit score do you require? You know, how much net worth do you have to have? How much post-closing liquidity. These are things you need to know because it's hard to believe, but we've had we've had loans come to us because they failed at a bank because, because the borrower uh, was going to be broke at closing. Stone broke, they had the down payment but they and the closing cost, but they didn't have, then they were going to be broke and no lender will allow that. 
even hard money lenders, you know, will frown at that. So, uh, so making sure that you as the borrower qualify, you might even you know, experience is important. Yeah, another one is, of course, with commercial real estate is the quality of the income. That's really king with commercial real estate. And that means you've got to really make sure that if you're just giving the financials that the listing broker gave you to the lender, that, that those are accurate. Because if they're not, the underwriter is going to catch it and then your loan's not going to qualify. So there's all these reasons why, but it's, but it's really sad when somebody gets so far in to a deal that, and it's a great property. And it's taken them, let's say, six or eight months to find this perfect property. And they've got an accepted offer on it. And, and they either are going to lose it or have to ask for an extension and put more under somebody down or something because they did not ask these questions. So I'm talking about getting really involved in the loan process. Yeah. It's not encouraged. You know, it's not encouraged. Lenders don't encourage you to do this. So <laughs> but it would save um, them time. Sure. And and what does it take? You know, I see your thing here, why you should join the non-recourse <clears throat> loan club. What does it take for people to to be able to get past recourse into non-recourse? What what are the cutoffs? What are the qualifications just, to get non-recourse? Okay, well, just okay, just for your listeners who might not know the difference, and a lot of people don't, unless you invest in commercial real estate, you'll never come across non-recourse lending. All banks, you know, when you get a car loan, um, a boat loan, or just about anything, what you're doing is you're signing a personal guarantee. And I guess, yeah, I guess with a boat loan or something or a car, it's like they're just going to take the car back. It's a very, but that's very unlikely they're going to sue you and go after other possessions. But certainly with a real estate loan, that it's called a recourse. If it's a recourse loan, it means that the lender has to be made whole. So what happens is that if they sell your your property at public auction, or they just want to get rid of it to the, whoever's, they just want to get it off their books, then they're going to take a lower price for it. They're then going to charge you what you owe, uh, plus attorney fees and so on. It's going to be expensive. And if, they, and if the property is not sold for that, there's a deficiency, then they could go after any of your other assets to make up that deficiency. They're going to get awarded by the court a deficiency judgment. And those are pretty scary. So if you're going to be so mainly because the majority of my the majority of my deals are syndicated transactions, and they require to raise people are the, the sponsors or managing members are raising investors that don't really want to risk all their toys and their real estate and everything, or their or their their kids' educational savings accounts. They could go over to those too. So would they? You could, if you want to raise investors, it's really important to really find out about non-recourse lending because if something happens where the property goes belly up, the only thing the lender can do is take that property back because they're not making the loan to you personally. They're making that loan to the ownership entity, like an LLC that owns that property. So not that it's not painful to lose the property, but at least you're not going to, and I tell a really great story about one of my clients that, you know, what happened when, when that deficiency judgment was executed on him you know and so if he only gotten a non-recourse loan you know he would have been protected from you know uh, losing his antique car collection his antique car collection you know so yeah yeah. so uh, other than doing it through an llc what what are they going to need to do to get a bank to say okay we'll give you non-recourse well the majority of banks i have to hate to say that unless you're putting like 50 percent down or something are not going to do recourse because resources their greatest weapon and they wouldn't think of doing it. I mean, if they don't have nothing to hold over you, why would they make this loan to you? It's like they, and what's unfortunate is they have a tendency to over-guarantee loans. They should just, you know, and sometimes if there's several investors, they'll each ask them, if each ask both. They'll say that's not that they're a married couple, but just two investors. 
but maybe if you're but yeah. maybe if you're a REIT and you're okay with 50%, you could go to a bank. Otherwise, you need to go to other lenders. Is that the point? Well, yeah, but but yeah, REITs REITs have really large balance sheets. They have a lot of cash. And so they're not gonna necessarily they they could certainly go, they could certainly there's a lot of them are funded by the largest, you know, banks, like, you know, Citibank and Chase and so on. But and they could get non-recourse funding, of course, because that's that's expected. But certainly for the average Joe. You know, if you start getting to, if you could start getting to the this, the size of a loan where it's going to be a million dollars and above, you really need to learn about non-recourse financing because uh, it's going to protect you. And it's also, if you want to raise, it's going to protect your heirs too. What's really amazing, what people don't realize is when they take out a bank loan and you guarantee that, you're guaranteeing that your heirs, if you die, have to qualify for that loan under the same the same terms. And and if they're not worth, they, let's just say if they don't have the income, let's say that you had, then the loan could be called due and payable. And a non-recourse loan, that loan has been once again is being made to like the LLC that owns the property. So sure. So and just for people who are listening today, what's just a rule of thumb that you would say when they're looking at other lenders, how much are they having to put down? What what are some of the conditions for other lenders if they're going to get non-recourse? Sure. Well, actually, non-recourse loans actually, you know, commercial loans are more restricted are more restricted by what we call a debt service coverage ratio, which is you know, how much can this loan payment, what's left over after you make your loan payments? They, you know, lenders want that to be at least for every dollar loan payment at like another 25 or 30 cents. And so, if, so that, that's, so understand, that's more the, that's more than what, that's more, that restricts the size of the loan more than certainly than the LTV. Now, a lot of lenders will say they go to, they'll say that they go to 75%. Most of our non-recourse loans certainly go up to 75%, some even to 80%. But the truth is, is that you have to have a very high, high cap rate, which means like, let's say an 8% return on your, if you were to invest this money in the stock market, you know, and most properties don't today don't have that. So you're not going to, so even though they say they do 75 or 80%, the truth is, is that they, they're going to, they're going to have a reason for lending you less. Uh, they, one of them is, but one of them is debt yield, which we don't have time to go into today, but there's, which really makes their deals bulletproof. Also, lenders stress out the interest rate. They don't, none of them really underwrite at the actual starting rate of your loan. They, let's say if your loan is at three and a half percent, they're going to stress that to probably at least five percent. And under, and for that reason, because they're underwriting at five percent, they're going to lend you less money. It's not explained. To you, and it's good to when you're qualifying yourself, pre-qualifying yourself for your loans, ask them like, what's their, what interest rate do they underwrite the loan to, you know? And do you really, are you, do you really make loans at 75%? Yeah. No, it, it's a good point. You know, I think about one of the CEOs of a real estate fund that's a client of our consulting firm. And I remember talking to him about his debt levels and, you know, he's, he's talking to me in terms of debt coverage, not as loan to value. Right. And it's back to that, you know, the jargon, Right. Right. Yeah, if you just throw in like, what's your debt? Do you, do, you, do you have a debt yield? I mean, that's really going to impress a lender. You know, you can look that up in my book. I love it. <laughs> well, listen, we've covered a lot of subjects here. What's, uh, we're kind of winding down. What's something we didn't cover that you want to? Let's see. Well, you know, I'd say probably the one, what, so repositioning is a lovely subject. It's really a hot topic. I mean, if you really want to make some money in commercial real estate, which what you're going to do because- you're going to have excitement. What happens is that just like in any business, people get burned out and property owners just, you know, they just really don't want to put, you know, their properties start getting older. They don't necessarily keep them up. 
They don't really keep, worse than that, they don't keep their rents at market. Their rents might be too low. So just think about this. You could actually find properties. It's gonna take some time, but it's kind of fun for a lot of my clients. And you can start making, throwing out some mobile offers on properties where the owners are just kind of burnt out and tired and they just want to, they just want to get, they just want to sell them. It's sure the real estate professionals are going to get the prices up there, but, but anyway, but if you could find, you're going to see upsides that the property owner is just missing. And, and so that's where repositioning comes in. And in, in my book, I go into the, th- you know, three different, basically basic types of, re, you know, repositioning. And the most inexpensive one is just take, just doing organizational, operational repositioning. And all you have to do is actually, in that case, you're just going to raise under market rents. You know, you're going to cut down expenses. You're going to, you know, maybe just paint the property and maybe you're going to take over managing it and get, or get rid of the on-site manager or something to save money. Those are operational and then the cosmetic ones really do, maybe you're going to put a new floor coverings, new appliances if it's an apartment building and spiff it up and then be able to raise rents. And then the constructional changes are the expensive ones where you're going to do maybe a major rehab. But actually, but just to take a, this is where you could really in two years really increase the value of a property and, and develop a specialty in that. And if you're handy, by the way, and you like to fix things and you, you know you could you know build a, a garage onto your property or something like that then this is your your area to really shine in you know it's interesting in this space that so. the guy that we hired to be the ceo of our real estate investment business it was so interesting for me to hear the different ways that he would reposition he did lots of multifamily amongst other property types but but multifamily is the biggest and it was interesting to listen for to hear him say like no, you know, when this happens, we what we would do is take out the laundry facilities that nobody's using and double the size of the gym in the building. Or if this happens, we take out the basketball cart and put in a dog park. Or, you know, in these buildings, we just, every time somebody moves out, we go through and get all the brass fixtures out and just put silver ones in. And it was funny, the little things that that he'd yeah. been effective with over the years and, and just, you know, knowing the metrics, like at this point, it's worth ripping out the basketball part and putting the dog park in because of what it'll do for the rents. And, and just knowing what amenities people actually want compared to what they've got, right? Exactly. In fact, and if you could put in a, 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 if you could just reconfigure the plumbing and put it in a washer and dryer, like in an extra closet or something, a stack up unit, that could be worth $75 more in rent. And exactly. I mean, my clients are really good at that. They know they look at a, at a property, they know what all these, like you're saying, all these add-ons are, worth, are going to be worth in terms of increasing rent. Yeah. Well, and what's funny is like 75, you know, there's probably a lot of people listening who, who maybe don't do this for a living. So making 70, making an extra $75 may not sound like a lot, right? But if, if you buy a building that makes 5%, but buying the washing machines, you're making like 28% return on investment on the washing machine and you've got a hundred unit right. building or 150 unit building that's $75 a month, you know, times 150 units times five or 10 years, like that's 75 bucks really adds up over time. Right. It really does. And another way to think about it too, is that it, it'd be, it, it, you know, less the cost of less the cost of the investment and that improvement, it goes right. The rest goes right to your bottom line immediately. And the way, and what that does is that as you as you increase your net operating income and by raising rents, you're going to, and you're going to actually increase the value of the property. And if, when you do sell, that's where you're going to really make your your windfall. So that's great. Well, listen, everybody, uh, please go to Amazon, 
check out Terry's new book, The Encyclopedia of Commercial Real Estate Advice. Check out his his company, apartments, apartmentloanstore.com. Connect on connect on social media and LinkedIn. Terry, thanks for doing this. This is fun. Hey, it's been fun. It's been fun. Bye, everyone.